Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the primacy of consciousness. With me is Dr. Eben Alexander, who is a former professor of neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. He is the author of several books, including Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. Welcome. Evan. Jeff, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. In our previous discussion about uh, integrating the near-death experience, you, you described your journey as a materialistic scientist. And, and what that means is that uh, matter, inert dead matter, is the fundamental bedrock of uh, everything we experience in the universe. But there's another point of view. It's actually a very ancient point of view uh, with a, a noble philosophical tradition, which is the opposite, that consciousness is primary, not matter. Right. And I, I would say that uh, <clears throat> certainly was a beautiful uh, kind of gift to me and implication of my journey. Mm -hmm. But my scientific mind, <clears throat> you know, in those early months of trying to make sense of all this, couldn't see how it could be so. But mm -hmm. I had to go much more deeply into the modern neuroscience of consciousness and philosophy of mind mm -hmm. to begin to realize how, in fact, materialist science has never gotten anywhere. They've never even gotten out of the starting blocks with any kind of putative explanation of consciousness as originating in the brain. So uh, it really uh, opens the door to some uh, tremendous understanding and as I often point out, uh, the hard problem of consciousness, which is the extreme challenge in the neuroscience of consciousness and philosophy of mind in trying to come up with any mechanism mm -hmm. by which the physical brain might give rise to consciousness, um, is a very daunting issue. And in fact, most of the people I know involved in the scientific study of consciousness uh, are now moving to much more expanded models. And mm -hmm. it's because they realize uh, that the simplistic notion of the physical world being all that exists and the brain is somehow creating consciousness out of purely physical matter is completely false. It does not explain even the rudiments of conscious awareness in our consensus day-to-day uh, -day reality. Mm -hmm. But much worse... Uh, it does not begin to approach any kind of explanation for all the many examples of non-local consciousness. Really? Uh, uh, the fact that telepathy is real, that precognition is real, that we can actually know the future before it happens mm -hmm. and scientifically demonstrate uh, that kind of effect. Uh, that there's even something called presentiment, where our, <clears throat> our autonomic nervous system can actually respond uh, to immediate future events before they've even been determined, say, by a random number generator in a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, so the whole world of psychology and examination of mind and consciousness is revealing all kinds of ways that we can be aware of things beyond the kin of our physical senses, mm -hmm. things like remote viewing. Yep. You know, the psychic spy programs uh, in many government agencies over the last many decades uh, showing that there are ways that uh, people can train to actually uh, know things beyond the kin mm -hmm. of their physical senses. Out-of-body experiences mm -hmm. are something uh, that many people have uh, kind of come to discover on their own and have taken advantage of. Um, and so these are all ways of saying that consciousness is not limited to the confines of the physical brain and the body. And, of course, the big implication of all that is what happens when the brain and body die. Uh, and there it looks very strongly like the reality is <clears throat> not only that our consciousness continues beyond death of the brain and body, but that it actually expands tremendously in its kind of scope and understanding. Uh, so I think uh, all of this is uh, a fascinating mm -hmm. uh, world of discovery that is opening up to, uh, to modern science, and yet it leaves the simplistic... Uh, 
uh, view of brain creates consciousness, you know, the physical is all that exists, leaves it in the dust, which is a good thing given that that view has never gone anywhere in terms of explaining the nature of consciousness itself. Well, um, as a devil's advocate, I'll play <laughs> that role. I'm very sympathetic to your point of view, but I'm aware of the fact that, uh, let's take remote viewing as one example. I've done many interviews with Ed May, who was uh -huh. uh, one of the uh, directors of the remote viewing research funded by the U.S. government for uh -huh. many years. He's a physicalist. He believes that eventually we'll explain all of this uh, through normal physical processes. And he would argue that, well, physical science has been so successful. We, we know so much about the brain and the nervous system because of physical science. Eventually, we'll solve this sticky little problem of consciousness. Well, what I would say <clears throat> is that um, we're really expanding our kind of notions of what are natural science. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I think the word supernatural is very misleading. Yeah. And of course, this just points out how our linguistics are kind of the first order mm -hmm. of discovery in trying to yeah. understand the nature of the world. Um, but what we're really uh, investigating here is the natural world. Yeah. And once you realize that consciousness itself cannot be so readily uh, kind of determined by the physical workings of the brain, mm -hmm. uh, and I would say that's especially true in things like remote viewing, mm -hmm. um, because there you really have to postulate that there's an information field uh, that is far grander than, say, physical reality. Mm that is necessary for us to explain uh, explain the effects. Uh, and even though Ed may, may be saying all we need to do is study the physical more, and there, there's, there's a philosophical position uh, that I believe was originally defined by Sir John Eccles uh, called promissory materialism, right. which is the notion that I guess you could say that's how I, I believed it all worked before my coma. Mm-hmm. That if we simply study the physical world more and more, sooner or later, we'll come up with these answers. But what I would say, uh, uh, near-death experiences and, and many remote viewing and other things point out, is that there seems to be a realm of informational organization and causal effect, mm -hmm. <clears throat> kind of cause and effect between uh, certain situations uh, that that transcends the uh, kind of physical notion of causality and the physicalist mm -hmm. view. Uh, in many ways, you could say it's greatly uh, based in kind of an evolving notion of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. And and that is, is probably where maybe Ed May and I could have a little bit more of a discussion around it all uh, and maybe find a little more common ground. <clears throat> but the... Um, to me, it's fascinating that uh, both neuroscience of, of of consciousness and philosophy of mind have been working towards this position where mind seems to exist fundamentally, that you can cannot simply explain the workings of mind or free will by the workings of brain, just as I pointed out in our other interview with Wilder Penfield, the yeah. renowned uh, and very respected neurosurgeon, had concluded in his 1975 book, The Mystery of the Mind. But I think one of the problems he had at that time was that people didn't realize how far this whole quantum physics mm -hmm. uh, discussion would go. Yeah. And to really... Get, I don't want to go into detail about that because it does get very detailed. But uh, if you, we do follow it in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. We follow the various mm -hmm. turns in that. But in in brief, uh, it's basically <clears throat> founding fathers of quantum physics like Erwin Schrödinger, uh, Wolfgang Pauli, uh, Eugene Wigner, uh, John von Neumann, and others realized that you really could not formulate quantum physics in a materialist, physicalist sense without invoking consciousness in the mind of the observer at some fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And so all of them surmise from early quantum experiments that mind must be fundamental. Uh, in fact, Schrodinger wrote a beautiful essay on the, the nature of mind uh, that I would highly recommend to people. Um, but then what happened was in 1935, Einstein uh, expressed his... Uh, his real disdain for quantum physics mm -hmm. on the belief that it was an incomplete theory. Yep. 
Uh, and that was in what was called the Einstein Podolsky Rose in the EPR paper, right. EPR Paradox, 1935. And it was really a philosophical curiosity for a few decades. Mm -hmm. But then in the mid 1960s, uh, John Bell, a brilliant Irish, uh, physicist, uh, recognized that you could actually take the EPR argument and turn it into, uh, a kind of thinking that would enable empirical evaluation through experimental setups. Mm -hmm. And beginning in the 1970s, uh, physicists started taking that seriously and started, uh, you know, performing a series of experiments to try and better delineate mm -hmm. what was going on behind yeah. the measurement paradox right. and what's called contextuality, which is the notion in quantum physics that the subatomic particles really don't have a given property uh, until they're measured. And mm -hmm. the, the, the decision, the mental activity of the mind of the investigator in determining, for example, whether you're trying to demonstrate particle or wave properties of a photon or of some other form of matter uh, actually determines the behavior of that particle all the way back to its origin. And it really is kind of striking, the experimental evidence in more and more refined experiments, even going, coming into recent, dec recent years, uh, shows very profoundly that consciousness seems to be primordial. There's a, an organization of information at a very deep level that seems to defy the ability to put all of that determinism within one universe. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, if you take a poll of quantum physicists, or, or physicists, what do they believe, uh, you know, is the, the best interpretation of the measurement paradox, mm -hmm. which points out this, this odd feature of contextuality and the importance of the mind of the observer. Um, they basically come up with the uh, the many worlds interpretation, you know, mm -hmm. Hugh Everett's 1957 or, model. Or as I understand it, most physicists are taught not even to think about it. It's well, shut yeah, up and calculate. Shut up and calculate is the general <laughs> quote. In other words, if all you do is you want to design one third of our economy, yeah. because, you know, all of our microelectronics, GPS, computers, cell phones, <clears throat> every bit of that. Mm-hmm depends on uh, quantum uh, equations, the Schrodinger yeah. equation, and, and how it's uh, utilized in, <clears throat> in microelectronics and all. And yet, uh, if you go deeply into the experiments, it's just mind-bending. It, it, it seems completely uh, counterintuitive. And I think part of it is our very notions of time and space are built in kind of on this side of the veil. Mm -hmm. And that's why quantum physics reveals some very kind of deep, uh, kind of astonishing principles of operation mm -hmm. at work in the very fabric of all the reality around us. Uh, as Niels Bohr put it, uh, we, we've got to face the fact that all of the reality around us is made up of things that are not real. Mm -hmm. uh, they behave in a completely counterintuitive and unreal fashion. And yet, when you assemble it all into this macro world, you have... Uh, you know, this apparent uh, kind of behavior by conventional classical physics. And I would say that where the uh, kind of materialist science went wrong on all of this is that they failed to recognize that what a human being perceives is always the inside of their own consciousness. And what modern neuroscientists would agree on, first and foremost, is that every single bit of your thoughts, your perceptions, your awareness, your reflection, every bit of your mental reality you've ever had has depended on the activity of neurons, of mm -hmm. the hundred billion cells in your brain. Right. Now, the, the mistake is in not recognizing that a neuron is absolutely the working ground for Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You know, all the stuff we look at out there, all the macro properties of things, mm -hmm. That's what we assume to be out there. But what we're actually experiencing is a mental model that's absolutely dependent on neuronal activity. And neuronal activity is completely within the world of Heisenberg's uncertainty. So if you're confining ions within ion channels, mm -hmm. um, and I know in the, uh, in the orchestrated OR theory of Stuart Hamroff and Roger Penrose, for example, they're talking about main, uh, maintaining quantum systems for long enough in microtubules of the brain because right. they can maintain the quantum state long enough for information processing. Uh, but, but however you're looking at the activity of neurons, they are absolutely working 
in the realm of the quantum, where that tight spatial confinement completely opens up the momentum vector, so that in fact it's a perfect staging ground for consciousness to manifest reality, beginning with the brain, the body, and from thence outward, all of this world. Well, if consciousness itself is primary, then the neurons would be, even the brain itself is a product of consciousness. It is a product. That's the important point. Yeah. Uh, and it's because the, the consciousness, the phenomenal experience, mm -hmm. is what is actually happening. Yeah. <clears throat> and then if we look at that, if we, you know, as neuroscientists, if we could look closely enough, what we would be finding is that the superposition states in those various ion channels is that which only selects for the conscious phenomenal experience, which is the result of those superposition states spread through all of those uh, ion channels in 100 billion neurons of the brain, even though mm -hmm. uh, the, the truth of the matter is the majority of the brain's neurons are not even involved in what we would call conscious experience. Most of the neurons, for example, something like... Uh, uh, 60 to 70 percent, I forgot the exact number, uh, of neurons in the brain are in the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a lot of work in the cerebellum when I was uh, doing uh, lab work as a resident where we would actually remove parts of the cerebellum. <clears throat> and you find it has no influence on consciousness at all. There's a short adaptive period where people's motor skills are altered. Mm -hmm. But in other words, just having the neuronal activity um, Proper is not what leads to consciousness, but the thing to remember is the consciousness is the only thing that actually exists. And it then generates so much of this other uh, apparent physical reality mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and hence outward to all of causality. But it all mm -hmm. begins in that mental model. One of the problems of even talking about consciousness is we, it seems to me we don't have a good definition of, of what consciousness is. For ex example, we have the unconscious. And the right. subconscious, uh, it, it seems that the humans, and, and not just humans, but uh, other animals and uh, computers are a really good example. Computers can be very intelligent without right. being conscious at all. Well, I, I would say that's an important point is uh, to uh, differentiate between what's known as artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and conscious awareness. <clears throat> and, of course, there's something called the Turing test that Alan Turing came up right. with to assess uh, how good an artificial intelligence system is. Yep. And basically, it, it, you know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Mm -hmm. If you can duplicate the linguistic responses of a human being uh, satisfactorily so that uh, the person who's doing the interview can't tell if they're interviewing a true human being uh, or a uh, computer, then you pass the Turing test. Yeah. But that doesn't take you anywhere towards identifying self-awareness of that system. Right. Now, from my point of view, as I point out in Proof of Heaven, uh, I believe that one of the greatest indicators that we are not philosophical zombies, that's uh, in consciousness discussions, uh, for example, if you talk to Daniel Dennett at Tufts, uh, he might bring up the notion of a philosophical zombie. Mm -hmm. uh, now, a philosophical zombie would be someone who looks, acts, and quacks just like a human being. Uh, for example, an Eben Alexander zombie would mm -hmm. sit here and do all the things I do and make mm -hmm. all the points. And yet, that philosophical zombie would have no inner conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Now, from my point of view, even though I, I, I think that there are ways to get around this, but I used to kind of quip that uh, I think our sense of humor is one of the most uh, brilliant uh, kind of indicators of our divine nature and that we're not oh, philosophical yeah. zombies. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say a really good stand-up comic who could get up there and uh, just uh, leave the audience in stitches with every line mm -hmm. uh, is probably a good example of something that is not going to be a philosophical zombie. In other words, I think that that kind of connection might be an indicator. But as soon as, as a comic is on stage and I videotape his performance and then program that performance into a robot, I could duplicate well, it. Well, that you could argue that's true. I mean, yeah. I must say my thinking on it maybe is a little more sophisticated than it used to be. But I used to think that the best actual test of mm -hmm. kind of awareness was a, a good sense of humor yeah. that could make fun of, uh, you know, the self on the fly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, that that would be a nice uh, kind of skill. But you're, you're probably right. You could probably program that. <clears throat> but the important uh, distinction still remains 
do not confuse inner awareness of existence right. with uh, artificial intelligence and passing the Turing test. Mm-hmm. And kind of duplication. Uh, it's the same problem that we get into when people discuss NDEs and then people discuss something like a psychedelic drug experience. Right. A lot of the language can sound similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we make a mistake of assuming that because the words to describe it have some similarities, that maybe the phenomenal experience is the same. But it, uh, I know of a number of cases uh, of you know people with experience uh, with uh, NDEs mm-hmm. uh, and with uh, psychedelic drugs and certain si- uh, scientific papers that have directly compared the two, where you can show uh, uh, that there are very um, kind of major differences mm-hmm. in the quality of an NDE, especially some of the transcendental elements that seem to leapfrog way above and beyond what the psychedelic drug experience brings. So, in mm-hmm. other words. Just having that linguistic overlap um, does not necessarily take you there either. Um, But getting back to to Ed May and to the quantum physics, I believe that uh, uh, especially a series of uh, kind of arguments I've seen uh, lately, uh, Bernardo Castrop has been a a good friend and colleague in in our defense of idealistic Philosophy, especially mm-hmm. uh, you know ontological or metaphysical idealism, and that's where that's mm-hmm. what we argue in the book *Living in a Mindful Universe*. That this is really all headed, which and, and puts uh, it, consciousness fundamental. It's useful to point out that there are now a community of scholars who are really pushing this point of view. That if we look very carefully at uh, all of the data, uh, we need to revise our metaphysics. Right. I think that's absolutely true, and mm-hmm. uh, you know it should come as no surprise that the scientific revolution over 400 years was really based in studying the material world. Mm-hmm. So if you study the material world, you're going to learn a lot about the yeah. material world. But again, the step that they miss mm-hmm. is the realization that what humans experience is all engineered in mind, in mm-hmm. this layer of mind with this ordering of causality that uh, is kind of much closer to the origin than the stage setting. All that material world out there is just the stage setting on which that drama unfolds. Mm-hmm. Well, you're an expert in the brain. And it, let's assume now, uh, from your point of view, consciousness is primary, that, uh, which, which means that everything we experience is composed somehow of consciousness, originates in consciousness. What then is the role of the brain? The brain's a filter. Mm-hmm. It's a reducing valve. Um, that's that's language that really comes from the late 1800s. Uh, the notion of the brain as a filter uh, was very popular uh, among great uh, students of the human psyche, like William James, yeah. the great Harvard professor, <clears throat> who was mainly active around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, uh, but also very popular, for example, with Henri Bergson in France, mm-hmm. FCS Schiller. Uh, and a little bit later, Aldous Huxley. Uh, these were all very astute uh, kind of philosophers, investigators of uh, the human psyche and of the workings of brain and mind. Uh, and they came to realize that the best way to ex- explain a lot of the ph- phenomena that they discussed uh, was to see consciousness as fundamental. Yeah. And certainly that had to do with their knowledge of kind of the spirit world, of communication, of after-death communications, uh, from the spirit world to loved ones left here in the physical plane, as well as uh, what would be broadly labeled mediumistic uh, psychic readings, for example. Mm-hmm. And although many people out there tend to say, oh, well, psychics are all, uh, they're all fakes, that's not true. I mean, for example, if you look at the, the work uh, Julie Beischel uh, has done at the Winbridge Institute, right. winbridge.org, mm-hmm. uh, she's done, uh, you know, quintuply blinded studies to identify psychics with very profound psychic abilities. So, uh, you know, psychic mediumship is, is mm-hmm. in many uh, scientists' mind a, a, a very proven modality, just as remote viewing is. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I mean, I don't think there are many scientists who study consciousness who would doubt the reality of remote viewing, of a, the ability to uh, see inside targets halfway around the world. Well, and, and certainly not Ed May, who is also a specialist in precognition, but he would argue as a physicalist that, well, there's an information channel that right. we don't yet understand, but eventually we'll figure it out. And so information can come from the future or it can come from a different uh, a distant place in, in space, but uh, eventually uh, we'll be able to interpret all of that in the, from the perspective of physical science. Well, I would say we'll be able to interpret it all on the workings of the natural world. Mm -hmm. Uh, a deeper understanding of consciousness, especially one that honors consciousness mm -hmm. as fundamental and creative in all of emergent reality. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's the natural world. And our study, uh, for example, of the physical world can be very helpful. For example, in, in Living in a Mindful Universe, we discuss uh, several recent studies, uh, scientific studies, that have looked at the effect of uh, what are known as serotonin 2A uh, psychedelic type drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not call them hallucinogens because I believe that they actually open a doorway to a very real world. Just like dreams yeah. are also, in a sense, a doorway to the same realms that mm -hmm. we go into in NDEs. Yeah. But we get into different levels of them with mm -hmm. different kind of levels of kind of informational uh, fidelity and all that kind of thing. People sometimes call these drugs entheogens. Entheogens, right. That They basically... Um, bring the God force within. But I, mm -hmm. I would say more to the truth, they simply reveal to us that mm -hmm. we have that godlike yeah. uh, oneness of consciousness uh, within us all. But the point I'm making in those studies, for example, from Robin Carhart Harris, uh, Imperial College in London, 2012, this is a book that, uh, or a paper that's actually referenced in Proof of Heaven mm -hmm. in the bibliography, even though I don't discuss it in detail in the text. But in Living in a Mindful Universe, we discuss several of these papers. Uh, that paper looked at psilocybin and used functional MRI, which is a way of looking at activity levels in regions of the brain yeah. while a patient is having a certain kind of phenomenal experience. Mm -hmm. And these patients were under the influence of either a placebo or or of psilocybin. And the shocking finding there, certainly shocking to materialist scientists, was that the more profound the experience, and they measured that with a visual analog scale for various types of qualities that, uh, you know, of oneness and a, a sense of connection, sense of love, mm -hmm. encountering souls of departed loved ones, uh, having visions of the future, uh, kind of visions of purpose in one's life, all these uh, various phenomenal qualities of mental experience, especially in extraordinary states. Um, um, and what they found, though, is that the more profound the psychedelic state, the more detailed and complex the journey, the more the physical brain shuts down, gets out of the way. Oh. In other words, the main junctional regions of the brain on functional MRI mm -hmm. go dark. Now, this made perfect sense to me mm -hmm. because in my experience, the point I made in Proof of Heaven was... I I knew the journey I had been through. I knew and had witnessed this extraordinary, more way too real to be real essence, just as so many other near-death experiences mm -hmm. have described of those spiritual realms. And yet I knew that happened at a time when my doctors had perfect documentation of the damage to my neocortex. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, according to modern neuroscience, at those times I should have experienced only the dimmest, I think maybe my earthworm's eye view, mm -hmm. would be the kind of consciousness you'd expect that brain to muster. And yet I had a reality that was far more profound, complex, vivid, alive, interrelated, meaningful, and memorable than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. Because the brain wasn't filtered. It was out of the way. Uh -huh. Exactly. And... Uh, and so in these psychedelic studies, you find exactly the same thing. In fact, there is no area of the brain where you have increased activity. Every bit of it is the shutting down. And that was not an isolated paper. In fact, I'll point out that when that paper came out, Christoph Koch, who was the head of uh, Paul Allen's uh, Neuroscience Research Center in Seattle, mm -hmm. wrote an article in Scientific American 
uh, about your brain on drugs, surprise, surprise, guess what? Yeah. It goes dark. Uh, just like any materialist, physicalist, neuroscientist who believes the brain would create consciousness, these studies completely defy that interpretation. Mm -hmm. And they have been duplicated. So, for example, a group in South America looked at DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in ayahuasca, which is often used uh, for profound spiritual experiences because it seems to open a door to an alternate realm. And when you talk to people who've done ayahuasca, interview many, read these books, they seem to be talking about a common reality, mm -hmm. uh, a shared realm that's mm -hmm. very real. It's as real as this one. And often I have to remind my audiences that Say, if we took a group of 20 people in this audience and literally sprinkled them around Greater Paris for 12 hours uh -huh. into random situations and then brought them all back here, they'd all have very different stories to tell. Right. It would depend on where they were in their life journey at that point, who they ran into, what their interests were, what their discussions were all about, what they saw, and then they come back here. Now, there's only one Paris. But they'd all have different stories. And I promise you, the spiritual realms are far vaster. Mm -hmm. But still, the consistency of stories, um, the kind of meaning and power of them, how they change people's mm -hmm. lives, that is very much uniform across the board. And it doesn't depend on your prior religious mm -hmm. beliefs uh, or on your scientific mm -hmm. knowledge. Or, uh, uh, you know, it really often the lessons gleaned in these kind of journeys, especially NDEs and shared death experiences and other spiritual epiphanies, uh, spiritually transformative experiences, are very revelatory. They mm -hmm. take us to whole new levels of understanding. So to pretend that they're just some little chaotic mechanistic trick of the dying brain and nothing more is a very misleading uh, kind of mode of thought and interpretation. Well, it, in your experience, in, in your near-death experience, it was a very real place. Uh, it was much more real than any. Mm -hmm. This is more dreamlike. <laughs> that's the part that's kind of hard for people to understand. They think, well, you know, an NDE, you know, you're dying, so it must be very murky. Mm -hmm. Well, my earthworm my view was murky, and if I just come back from there, I probably would have had a hellish NDE. But no, I went beyond, as so many millions of near-death experiences have done over millennia. And yes, the beyond of the Gateway Valley, the mm -hmm. core realm, every bit of that was just rich with ultra-reality, with... With meaning, as I, I've said earlier, those memories do not fade. Uh, you compare them with real-life memories in scientific studies of even things like car wrecks and, and life-threatening uh, material events, and NDEs stand out as even more remarkable, mm -hmm. as being more real, more connecting, more meaningful. Uh, and then the memories are resilient over time. Well, there are some physicalists who would say uh, they'd go this far. And, and I think it's a compelling argument, actually, that, yes, what you experienced was very, very real. And physical science will eventually explain it in terms of hyperspace, higher dimensions of space that we can now map out mathematically with great precision. We might, but at the same time, I think we will easily discover that consciousness is far more than anything that could be derivative from the workings of the physical brain. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, I mean, it, it, at this stage in the game, it's very largely a kind of a matter of semantics and yeah. definitions. You know, when you're talking about God and God force and you're talking about consciousness and mind, but, but then as you point out, well, we also have kind of subconscious and an unconscious. Mm -hmm. And then there's even kind of a superconscious, right. uh, kind of where all of this comes together. And I would say that in many ways, those are kind of semantic issues. But that consciousness remains that of which an individual sentient being can become aware. Mm -hmm. uh, and that in that setting, uh, especially, for example, with the experiments of Daryl Bem, you know, with precognition, there are really some stunning examples there mm -hmm. that go far, far, far beyond statistical, you know, any question of, of probability of their, mm -hmm. of their truthfulness, uh, that we can know the future. Yeah. And we can know it before the random number generator has even determined what future to present to us on the computer screen. Well, it presents a paradox uh, at that point, because if the future is knowable, it really calls into question our free will. Well, that is where I think it gets especially exciting. And in many ways, I would say that uh, this discussion is all about 
about free will, mm -hmm. uh, whether we have it or not, and what is its true nature. Uh, and that has many kind of different levels. I, I can tell you from my uh, from my psychic journey of my NDE, uh, from the 10 years since then, from all mm -hmm. my meditative experiences, um, more and more I am committed to an understanding um, that free will is absolutely alive and well, right. and that our existence as sentient beings, mm -hmm. in many ways, is this beautiful tango. It's a dance between uh, kind of the mission that our soul group and our higher souls and all determined before we came into this lifetime mm -hmm. of what would be the stepping stones, what would be the hardships we wanted to face yeah. to try and uh, bring all of our prior lifetimes into focus to grow. Mm -hmm. Because it's not, when I talk about reincarnation in that setting, it's not some blind mechanistic wheel of suffering where the only goal is to get off. It's actually a mission of growth. And you realize that our journey is a soul cannot happen in one lifetime. So it, it demands multiple lifetimes for that growth to occur. But with a strange kind of paradox that we also come in and have that program forgetting mm -hmm. that comes into yeah. play as we uh, you know, are an infant and a toddler and a child, and we're going through all this learning. We have those memories of all that past stuff, and we kind of integrate that as we're shaping it, and we know where things are headed, but then we start to forget it all. And that gives us skin in the game, mm -hmm. so that by age six or seven, we've pretty much forgotten most of that. Yeah. And that way, we buy into this existence and jump in full force. And then when we hit those hardships that I believe we actually put into play before we were born, it's how we deal with them. So we then have the free will in the setting of program forgetting to make choices. And they have to do with certain of the lessons that are residual that have been allowed in. But I think all of it is this beautiful dance between that free will and how we respond to those hardships and difficulties, illness, injury, suicide of a child, loss of a loved one, terminal diagnosis. I'm talking about the tough stuff. Mm -hmm. How do we in a sense, recover our sense of self, of divinity, of trust in the universe, in a loving, powerful force at the core of it all. How do we uh, kind of adapt in our lives and grow in our knowing of that relationship? And that, I believe, is really the purpose of life. Uh, you know, at the entrance to the temple, temple at the Oracle of Delphi are the words, know thyself. Mm -hmm. And I believe that ultimately, that's what we're all here to do. But realizing also that thy Thyself, when you realize that you're that very spark of conscious awareness is one with that God force, the creative loving force at the core of the universe, mm -hmm. we realize thyself is something really big. Uh, what I've come to realize that in, in one sense, the best way to look at it is that each and every one of us has a one-to-one -one connection with the wisdom, love, and creative power of the entire universe. And we are here to manifest that to our best abilities. And in that sense, I would say free will is absolutely Absolutely alive and well, because that kind of free will of the higher soul mm -hmm. in steering this world and realizing that each and every one of us plays a tremendous role in this evolution of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. As Taylor de Chardin put it yeah. in his book, The Phenomenon of Man in the Mid-20th Century, where all of evolution is seen as kind of an evolution of consciousness towards what he called an omega point, uh, kind of the Christ energy, but not in kind of a traditional Christian sense of Christ, but more as kind of a God force of the pure loving origin of the universe also being kind of that distant horizon point to which all of consciousness evolves. Mm -hmm. And I would say, just like that old saying, um, you know, all politics is local, in a similar way, all of the evolution of consciousness in the grand scale of the universe is nothing more than the individual sentient being uh, trying to answer these deep questions uh, in, in knowing thyself, knowing that connection with the universe and the great depths of consciousness and of the possibilities for expression of that free will. Well, we, we started out this conversation talking about the primacy of consciousness, but as I listen to you, what I think I'm hearing is something a little different. It's, I would call it the primacy of love. Very much the case. I mean, as I said in proof of having the deepest scientific truth of my journey mm -hmm. was coming to know that fundamental 
function of love that, uh, I mean, it's what when near-death experiencers by the millions come back to this world, mm -hmm. that's the part that allows them to have no fear of death, mm -hmm. is having touched that, that uh, indescribable, mm -hmm. you know, absolutely ineffable oneness of love and of comfort of being home. That is our truest mm -hmm. home. And that's what NDEers by the millions tell you when they come back to this world. And of course, there are those out there who haven't read the full memo yet who say, well, wait, wait a minute, if I want to buy into my Christian orthodoxy of one incarnation, then eternal heaven or hell, if all that realm is so beautiful, why don't I just go there now? Mm -hmm. And again, I have to emphasize, suicide is not the answer because people who hear that part of the story are tempted, especially if they're not willing to go through the toughness and hardship mm -hmm. that they dealt for themselves to serve as stepping stones, to learn the deep lessons and to grow the mm -hmm. most in this incarnation. If they short circuit and tempt themselves into suicide, all they're doing is postponing dealing with those very same issues. Mm -hmm. So don't go that shortcut. We have to deal with it. But I came back realizing from my journey when I was sitting on that ICU bed saying, all is well, don't worry, all is well, is realizing now in my meditation, I simply need to gain the perspective where I realize no matter how big the challenge or interrelationship problem that I might be facing in an issue today, in deep meditation, higher soul to higher soul, I can always gain the perspective that allows me to see that higher soul free will and the win-win situation for all involved. Uh, way above the petty little view of my ego. Mm -hmm. You know, the petty little view of the human in the sense of self. But that's why I think meditation is so crucial because all of us can develop that profound sense of oneness with our higher soul interconnected with the one mind and the higher souls of all sentient beings throughout the cosmos in trying to identify our free will pathway and the choices that we should make in any of the interactions or kind of life events mm -hmm. that we're trying to deal with day to day here. Mm -hmm. And that's where I believe that kind of, uh, you know, a rethinking and reworking maybe the semantics of how we frame the higher soul and free will mm -hmm. uh, and of even God and that oneness yeah. with God can have tremendous power. But so much of it goes beyond the words we speak. You know, I know often when I'm speaking with audiences, especially filled with indie ears and other spiritually transformed higher sentient beings, that the words are just, a, they're like the ice floating at the very top of the, mm -hmm. of the Arctic Ocean, but they don't cover the depths of so much of more of what is really a heart and love bound conscious um, kind of communication that I see going on beneath the surface. And that's where I think the real power is. And the true manifestation of our higher will is really dependent on acknowledgement of that force of love. Mm -hmm. uh, as I often say, the, the golden rule in so many ways is written into the very fabric of the universe. It's not simply the most prominent message that comes out of the deep mystical traditions of all the great faiths to treat others as you would like to be treated. All they're trying to say is we're really sharing the one mind. To hurt another is to hurt myself. We see that purely in a life review. It's a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I would say, especially when you start realizing the scientific basis behind, uh, for example, reincarnation, for example, uh, the cataclysmic uh, change in the climate, that yeah. our ongoing decisions in the now mm -hmm. to burn fossil fuels as if our, you know, we don't recognize that our mouth is on the tailpipe. You know, this, <laughs> this CO2 is not going somewhere else. It's yeah. going into the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. And our buffering systems uh, have been rapidly overwhelmed. Even if we start, stop burning fossil fuels today, Global warming and buildup of CO2 will continue for a century. So it's pretty clear the planet is uh, entering into a crisis stage. And we will be the ones reincarnated to experience that. Yeah, and we're That's the cause of it. That's a bigger view. We're the cause of it. Uh -huh. We need to treat others as we would like to be treated because that's exactly the deal we've entered into. Well, but it raises a big question for me, which is why? What's the purpose of this? Well, I, I would say from my journey... Um, it was quite clear what a purpose was. Now, the reason I, did, I didn't stress this, even though I mentioned it in Proof of Heaven, 
uh, is, of course, it's a bit more controversial. And I knew that book had to be, uh, you know, an attractor, had to be a bridge. Mm-hmm. I had to meet people where they were. Yeah. So I couldn't go so, so far with it. But it was very clear with me on my journey that this is really the evolution of at least 5,000 years of human thought about brain, mind, consciousness, the nature of reality. Uh, and that in many ways, it's because we are we are potentially members of a much bigger club. Mm. Uh, and you could say that uh, kind of in broad strokes and simple uh, language, uh, it's, it's the community of conscious sentient beings throughout the cosmos, mm-hmm. many of whom are far beyond our concepts of yeah. space and time, but certainly are well versed in the knowing of the loving nature of the core of the creative source of the universe. Mm-hmm. So in other words, my view of joining uh, these uh, civilizations, cosmic, the cosmic civilization around us, which I think uh, has been part of the interaction for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Uh, but at this stage in the game, we remain a very primitive, coarse, barbaric, uh, kind of embarrassingly primitive society. I mean, look at the warfare. It's just astonishing to me uh, to look at humanity Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we're still running around killing each other. You know, in the last century, humans have killed 100 million humans have been murdered. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to think of how can that possibly be, you know, that we still, I mean, you'd like to think that with the great advances in humanity, uh, what we should have seen in the 20th century, uh, of growth in the human spirit and of, of our our kind of notion of togetherness and of oneness should have paralleled our ability to, you know, in the First World War, the chemists built uh, machine guns and high explosives and chemical weapons. Uh, in the Second World War, the physicists committed their sins. Once again, science, divorced from human spirit, gave us nuclear weapons. Yep. If we're ever stupid enough to have a World War III, World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. And to me, there's this gigantic mismatch. Mm-hmm. And part of it has to do with the smoke and mirrors trick of people thinking that the, that same science that was giving them all those weapons in the mid-20th century was hot on the trail of discovering a, the a means and mode of consciousness through studying the material realm. Whereas, in fact, quantum physics has spent 80 years trying to steer us in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. That is the awakening that is coming to this world. We were dead wrong. In, in fact, in all that discussion of the ghost in the machine, many scientists in the late 20th century started laughing at the fact that we were ever fooled into thinking that there was a ghost in the machine. They were wrong because there was no machine, only the ghost. The consciousness is what actually exists. And I think what we're seeing now is is kind of a, a reblending, a synthesis where a human spirit and this awakening of our understanding of consciousness, mm-hmm. on, of its primary role in evolution of the universe in each and every one of our lives, but also for society at large, is unfolding. Mm-hmm. And so in essence, the reason we are now faced with this awakening is because we face a choice. Are we able and capable of surviving, joining this greater community of sentient Mm -hmm. awareness that is so far more advanced than we are? We need to, for once and for all, forego the incredibly inane, uh, materialistic, separatist stupidity of killing each other off as if we're separate from each other, which I would say is fundamentally an error in thinking introduced by materialist science. Well, earlier you talked about looking at the natural world. And uh, from the perspective of the natural world, I guess it's fair to say we are primates and uh, other primates uh, are known to murder uh, each other. We're, We're not the only primate species that does it. We've, we've probably perfected it. Well, we've, we've certainly made it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say um, in, in those occasional epi- episodes where you could see primates uh, murdering each other over territory and things like that or over mm-hmm. uh, sexual favors, what have you, mm-hmm. uh, you could almost claim that they had some justification. Uh, unfortunately, in so much of what I see and what humans have done uh, to mistreat uh, torture and kill others, it's not really even had what you could look at as any kind of uh, uh, 
rational justification. It's, no, it's madness. It's, it's not, absolute madness. Yeah. What we have allowed, yeah. um, the very fact that, uh, you know, in the United States, we spend somewhere around $1.6 billion every day, seven days a week on our military, yeah. uh, which is more than the six next countries combined, I think is a big indicator of something inherently very, very wrong with uh, kind of our modern civilization and where it's but, headed but and what it's doing. Started out by saying that we're the product of a of a loving creator. That you know that love is primary. How is it that that we evolved to this point? Well, I would say in many ways it parallels what in the addiction or alcoholism world is known as a gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you know, in that world of addiction and alcoholism, uh, it's well recognized that if we try and satisfy all the wants of the ego, it often leads to our demise. Yeah. We die. We hit a bottom that is too low. Mm -hmm. It does not allow us to live. Uh, that is, for example, why in the year 2017, we had 72,000 people die of opioid overdoses. Yeah. You know, the world of addiction and alcoholism is a horribly painful reminder of kind of the sickness of our modern society. But the way I like to look at it, I'm very optimistic about where this world is headed. Mm -hmm. So when I see these, kind of, what I say are the rise of the fundamentalisms, and that includes not only the religious fundamentalists like uh, jihadists and, uh, you know, some Christian fundamentalists who insist on, on open carry on the Christian campuses and things like that. So everybody's got their weapon on board. Um, um, I see that this uh, kind of madness about uh, kind of killing each other and our focus on weaponry and on the that side of technology and mm -hmm. science is part of that gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's to show us that that is a kind of madness uh, akin to the ego, demanding all the crazy things the ego will demand. And that's one of the most important steps we take as an individual in meditation is recognizing the ego is not who we are. Mm -hmm. The voice in the head, those little thoughts running through our mind, is not who we you are. You refer to who, it as the linguistic brain. That's the linguistic brain, right, yeah. which is also heavily the voice of ego. But one thing we we can develop very readily in, in meditation is uh, kind of grow that relationship with our higher soul, with that uh, the same kind of uh, awareness perspective that I can take to such an altitude that I can see the win-win situation for all involved mm -hmm. uh, and see that binding power of love that connects us all and still allows for each and every one of us to move forward mm -hmm. in our agenda as souls, uh, embracing that loving oneness. That is all something we can come to do in meditation and developing that is a very rich pathway out of the myth of, of kind of the ego is who we are and trying to satisfy those demands. And likewise, I would say that so much of the travesty of our modern civilization and that divorce of the human spirit and of that notion of love and oneness from that same science and technology that's given us all those weapons to make killing and murder so easy uh, that's part of that uh, gift of desperation. Mm -hmm. And so it's now time for us to collectively kind of reconnect with our higher soul and start to manifest mm -hmm. uh, that uh, kind of uh, uh, notion of oneness and the inner observer and the higher free will mm -hmm. that can take us to that higher pathway where we don't... Uh, continue in this uh, death spiral of what materialist science and its false sense of separation has given us so far. Mm -hmm. There are those who would argue that uh, it's because of war and conflict that, that we've had progress in society, that if it wasn't for all this conflict, we'd be living like the ancients did. We would never have developed science or technology. Well, I would say uh, I would rather replace that kind of race with something like the space race. Yeah. You know, many people would point out that a tremendous amount of that quantum revolution in terms of technology uh, not only came from trying to build better weapons, but it came from uh, trying to get to the moon and then from trying to send uh, robotic vehicles out to the planets and now entertaining the notion of sen sending humans to other planets and that kind of thing. So I would argue that you can have other kind of motivators for growth. Uh, there's no question that war has been sold 
uh, as uh, you know a tremendous boost to a consumer uh, economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it is, but there is a dirty, horrible underbelly. Uh, to that warfare in in the form of human misery on vast scales mm-hmm. uh, that I think is absolutely inexcusable. And, no sentient, mm-hmm. sane human being fully knowledgeable of the mayhem and and uh, and horrors that we bring on our fellow human beings and animals living in war zones uh, should ever be allowed. Uh, it, it's one of the benefits of the Internet and of our modern media, although the problem is the modern media, um, you know, it's always a two-edged sword. And the Internet, even though it's brought, you know, the power of the individual through their cell phone video to the world at large, it also has allowed for a lot of kind of nonsensical thinking, uh, polarizing thinking. I mean, so mm-hmm. much of this false notion of separation that comes from ma- the materialist scientific approach also filters into social media. Mm-hmm. And the notion, especially like in Facebook, to kind of use smart advertising, smart marketing. So they want you to click. Clicking can lead to buys and to commerce, but clicking can also lead when it leads you along a pathway of your and strengthens your beliefs Mm -hmm. as they get more and more polarized into something that's complete nonsense. That system supports it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, so many of the answers can come to us when we realize that, of course, you're not going to find all the answers at red or blue, black, white, male, female, what have you, but much more towards a middle ground. That's Mm -hmm. where the oneness is. That's where duality kind of comes into the oneness of consciousness. Uh, So it's always seeing all sides of it and realizing that you're never going to find the big answer at the polls. And yet our modern internet, so social media, a lot of that stuff tends to steer us in that direction, but again, to support that kind of clickbait consumerism. Mm-hmm. And we need to move beyond that. Earlier, we were talking about the, the great uh, neuroscientists, Wilder Penfield and Sir John Eccles, both of whom became dualists. Mm-hmm. They realized that consciousness operated independently of the brain, but I don't think they went so far as to say that consciousness is primary. Dualism is, I mean, you were referring to dualism a little earlier in terms of black and white, right mm-hmm. and wrong. Right. Uh, and, and some dualism is in some ways, from, I should think, from the perspective of uh, one mind, dualism is an illusion. Well, you know, dualism, uh, that's a point that we make in Living in a Mindful Universe. I think all the dualisms are convenient stepping stones, Mm -hmm. because really all of that discussion is looking at the brain-mind connection. And so at one end of the linear spectrum, uh, you can have brain creates consciousness, physicalism, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the kind of conventional neuroscientific view that I grew up with before my coma. And then you've got uh, all of the dualisms where you recognize that you cannot reduce mind to brain. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. And I would say that most uh, scientists who study consciousness have gotten to some form of dualism. Yeah. Uh, Christoph Koch, for example, admits in his book, uh, his book that came out about four or five years ago, his Confessions of a of a romantic uh, materialist, or I forgot the exact title, mm-hmm. uh, but he makes it clear that he, he realized that uh, you cannot just default completely to materialism. It doesn't work. Wilder Penfield was definitely on that page. Many others realize you've got mind has to have some kind of existence. Uh, but the problem is in trying to wed mind and brain together. You run into all kinds of arguments where you have trouble mm-hmm. connecting those two as a dualistic position. Right. And uh, I firmly believe that all of the dualistic positions are simply stepping stones in our thinking, mm-hmm. but none of them are ultimately the answer. Uh, and for various reasons that we describe in Living in a Mindful Universe, we had to go all the way to the opposite pole. Mm-hmm. That is the pole of pure metaphysical idealism uh, or ontological idealism, the notion that the entire universe uh, is mental and, uh, and human thought participates. And that mental universe projects a physical universe as a stage setting. Now, believe it or not, that kind of thinking is is of comfort to quantum physicists. For mm-hmm. example, uh, Richard Kahn Henry 
wrote a beautiful essay, one-page essay in Nature in 2005 called The Mental Universe, where he made, he's an astrophysicist, mm -hmm. head of the department at Johns Hopkins, so no slouch in the world of physics and astronomy. And yet he comes down very heavily uh, saying, look, people, let's just get this clear. It's, it's uh, obvious that the next step forward in our understanding of quantum physics is acknowledging that fundamentally the universe is based in a causal structure of information that is absolutely mental and that the physical universe only emerges as a stage setting on which that can unfold. Mm -hmm. And I would say that all of the development of modern neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, refinement of uh, our understanding of the measurement paradox in quantum physics, every bit of it lines up to support this awakening of the fundamental nature of consciousness, which is good news for human beings. Because what it really means is all of your choices do matter. You will reap what you sow. So it's of great value to learn. It's of great value to contribute to the love, compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That is such a fundamental lesson of near-death experiences and other primary empirical data that support the reality of the mental universe. And uh, once this revolution goes through, you won't have humans murdering humans. You won't have warfare. You won't have consumerism based on destruction and violence and hurting others because people realize it always comes back to bite them. Mm -hmm. And of course, this has been a fundamental lesson of religion for a very long time. Uh, one can only, you need go no further than the headlines and, and see... Uh, Islamic fundamentalists bombing and killing innocents or seeing, uh, you know, this litany of decades of abuse by uh, the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania, all covered by the institution mm -hmm. uh, to see that religions in many ways have dramatically failed us in any kind of mission and conveying a message from the prophets of oneness, of love, mercy and compassion. And yet the modern science is taking us absolutely in that direction. That's why I think it's such a crucial revolution for all of humanity to get. And I believe that if we look at the empirical data, uh, if we go within as individuals to tap into that oneness and that sense of love and of power of our higher free will, that we can manifest that in our uh, relationships with others. And from my point of view, there's nothing we need more in this world than simple acts of kindness and compassion between individual human beings to completely shift the tide of this madness that we find ourselves in. Well, that is a very hopeful message. And, and I have to say, listening to you, Eben, I've, I've been on the fence about this issue. I've thought to myself, no, it's, it's metaphysics. We can never really ultimately resolve this question, materialism, idealism. And at the end of the day, who cares? But I actually think uh, you've convinced me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and uh, I must say, I get to speak to a lot of people about this, many mm -hmm. of whom have never given any of this a thought. Yeah. And uh, that's very helpful to get that kind of tabula rasa view, that empty slate view and feedback. Uh, it helps me to kind of refine and understand the message. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of meditation, and that uh, that helps me to see this very clearly. And I, I have what I think um, is a, a very optimistic and hopeful view for the future of humanity. And it involves basically a, a complete reversal from a lot of what I define as kind of madness mm -hmm. in our modern society. Yeah. And yet I think all of it is very defensible on empirical principles, on the leading edges of our modern science and understanding brain, mind, and consciousness. Uh, all the scientists that I know in this world are already you know, a certain distance along this pathway we're describing, mm -hmm. some a little more so than others. Um, but the reality is uh, materialism is not in any of their windshields. Materialism is always in the rearview mirror. It's, uh, in fact, I would say, as I often do in my talks, that the truly open-minded skeptic 
if you're truly open-minded about this, and if you know enough about mind-body and the, the dualities and idealism and materialism, the, the one position you reject is absolutely ridiculous, is materialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, how could anybody possibly conjure up the contents of conscious awareness and especially of non-local consciousness just through three and a half pounds of gelatinous material with 100 billion neurons floating in a warm, dark bath? How does it happen? But that's where it's all happening. But the important uh, message, you know, from modern science is it's not being created in that environment alone. In other words, consciousness is much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And the brain is simply a filter that allows conscious experience and even allows memory in. Now, if you interfere with the filter, yes, you'll interfere with the consciousness and with the memories. That's why disease can have... Uh, such a stunning effect on the workings of the brain. Mm -hmm. But again, what I often have to point out to people in my talks, the evidence that consciousness is not created by the brain is all around us in the neuroscientific world. Uh, for example, uh, terminal lucidity, yeah. where elderly demented patients who might not have said a meaningful phrase for weeks or months come back to life, often in the last week of their uh, life on earth, with great reflection, memory, interaction, communication with loved ones at the bedside, often at a time when they're seeing the souls of departed loved ones coming in to them, uh, escort them over. Um, Terminal lucidity is commonly observed. Probably 5 to 10% of Alzheimer's cases demonstrate mm -hmm. some profound return of conscious yep. awareness. Then there's that whole category of what are called acquired savant syndromes, where some form of brain damage, whether it's a head injury, stroke, autism, what have you, can unmask a superhuman mental capacity that far exceeds what a normal human being with a normal human mm -hmm. brain can do. Uh, these are examples of how consciousness and mental experience are not created within the brain, but are filtered into existence from primordial consciousness that has tremendously more power. What an inspirational message. And uh... Well documented. Thank you so much, Evan. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's uh, great to see you again and I always love talking with you. And thank you for being with us. The New Thinking Aloud, or In Presence podcast, that you have just heard was originally recorded as a video for the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Check out the channel by going to newthinkingalloued.com.